podcast at the end of the end of history. My name is Alex Hokili, I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and this podcast is also Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare, both in the UK. And we have a guest today, Alex Gurevich, Associate Professor of Political Science at Brown University. Hello, Alex. Uh, hi, Alex. Yeah, good. Um, as always, um, I mean, regular listeners will know that when we have Alex on, we always have to try to disentangle which Alex is which. Um, we've tried numbers. Um, we've, we've decided not to. I think they that. can tell by the quality of the comments that are made during the podcast, Alex. Mm, mm. Um, <laughs> mm. But you could still be like, I, I like the good Alex, but you don't attach that to, to the name. They don't go, oh, the good good comment, Hokili. You know, they might just be like, so anyway, um, hopefully, listeners, you can distinguish. I'll be, I'll be happy to, I'll be happy to clarify for the benefit of our listeners. Don't worry. Um, that's Philip Cunliffe. That's the one making the bad points. Um, the ones that make you angry. That's him. Uh, right. So um, this is another episode on uh, Israel and Palestine. I say another because uh, we only got round to doing our very first one after six and a half years of doing this podcast uh, this very week. And you might say that's weird for a global politics podcast to ignore this issue. But to a certain degree, that's a, a deliberate choice. And partly it's a reflection of the fact that we live in very turbulent times and Israel-Palestine hasn't been um, particularly turbulent, I suppose, um, or particularly newsworthy relative to um, many other things that are going on. Now, uh, I think the, one of the reasons for um, not discussing Israel-Palestine with much frequency on here is that we believe, I think, that it takes an outsized importance in world affairs and one that it maybe doesn't deserve. You might feel that Israel-Palestine, listener, is the most important thing in the world and is far more important than conflicts, say, between Armenia and Azerbaijan or Iran and Saudi Arabia or Turkey and the Kurds. And that can be a legitimate standpoint, but I think it's a case that needs to be made rather than taken as given. And so we're not taking Israel-Palestine as, as given um, as being the most important thing in the world or somehow the key to global peace or justice or anything else. What we hope to do across this episode and any future episodes on this issue is to think things afresh, to be objective and not be beholden to the fixed ideas and unreflected commitments that make this conflict so intractable and fraught. Right. With that in mind, I'll hand over to Phil um, with the words intractable and fraught resounding in your in your head. Phil. Thank you, Alex. What we wanted to do was, I suppose, we wanted to, given this is our second episode in short succession on the conflict, um, in light of the uh, in light of the Hamas attacks in southern Israel and the um, Israeli retribution in Gaza and build up to what seems to be an imminent ground offensive, um, and we'll talk about you know all of these kinds of we'll talk about all of these dynamics in the course of our conversation. But before we do that, um, and before we talk through the kind of the political logic of the conflict, we wanted to think a bit about why we, th why we, which is to say the people in the, co you know, the host of the podcast and our guest today, Alex Gorovich, why we think the conflict draws more attention than so many other equivalent or worse conflicts. And I mean, you know, Alex gave a few of them. 
Uh, most recently, the uh, the expulsion of Armenians from Nagorno-Karabakh, Azerbaijan kind of reseizing that enclave, for instance. And that's, you know, a conflict which has been simmering for decades, um, also has gone through kind of bloody episodes, also a frozen conflict, also kind of disputed uh, competing claims to the same territory involving national claims, ancient history, ethnic claims, uh, populations that live in very close proximity bound up, and yet has kind of passed without any of the kind of attention or passion um, that is devoted to Israel-Palestine. And so for better or for worse, it draws all this kind of global attention. And I think it's worth, before we get into talking about the dynamics of the conflict, it's worth thinking about why that's the case. So what do you guys think? What are your thoughts on why this conflict draws so much attention compared to other conflicts that are equally equally as bloody um, and perhaps long ongoing. And I mentioned Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenia-Azerbaijan, but you could, you know, um, another one is, for instance, Sudan and South Sudan is more violent and lethal um, than the Israel-Palestine conflict in total terms, has been going on for longer. Um, if you count, you know, depending on how you count the origins of the Sudan conflict, and it's still ongoing, you know, um, and embroiling Darfur, apparently, once again. Anyway, we're not here to talk about that, but I wanted to give some you know, to make clear that it's not a question just of the intensity of the violence in Israel-Palestine. So uh, let's begin with uh, let's begin with our guest. So Alex Gorovich, why do you think this conflict draws attention in a way that other conflicts don't? You know, I've been thinking about that question, and I am genuinely unsure. Uh, and the last, I have a, I think I I have sort of partial what I think are sort of a partial explanation, but I don't, I can't quite put my finger on all of it. Um, but I think one thing that's become clear to me over the last week is that the conflict draws no attention except when there is sort of a severe conflict in the region. And then it draws, it, it draws outsized attention. So, um, in a weird way, a lot of the diplomacy in the region for the past 15 years kind of presupposed that somehow the whole thing had been somehow pacified or settled. That's why, you know, China could mediate negotiations between Iran and Saudi. Iran could have a rapprochement with the U.S. Saudi could have a rapprochement with Israel. Uh, and I'm sure we'll come on to those kind of geopolitical questions for a while. But that, those all were actually predicated on the idea that somehow the whole issue could just be kind of ignored. Um, but then when something like October 7th happens, it draws, I agree with you, it, it draws immense amounts of attention that seem to be out of proportion relative to other conflicts. Why is that? I mean, here's some, some reasons that, that come to mind. One is that um, we're really talking about why it draws so much attention in the West, the kind of attention it draws in the West, especially among the kind of politically active and engaged. And so one reason might just be that the Jewish question has historically been one of the issues through which the West has understood itself. I mean, it's mm. been at the heart uh, from the beginning of the birth of the modern West question of the Jews has never been just a story about the Jews. You know, it's why Marx's most famous meditations 
about the modern liberal state were called on the Jewish question, you know. So in some ways, I think it is about that. That's one reason why it draws such outsized attention. And two other reasons that kind of follow from that very broad and general one is that for one, I think over the past 20 or 30 years, Israel played a huge role in mediating the broader debate about humanitarianism and violence. So sort of Israel was recast as the victim state, the state for the victims, and therefore the ones whose violence was most justified. And that was a kind of linchpin in the broader sort of moralization of violence during the, you know, post-Cold War unipolar moment. Uh, and so all of the debates, not just about Israel or the Jewish question or whatever, but about violence, the use of violence itself, were really concentrated in this conflict because it, it sort of... Um, a lot of people tended to see Israel and the justification of its use of violence as the justification for humanitarian intervention everywhere or for what it meant to you know, have a more uh, uh, properly justified use of violence, namely to go after the people who threatened to commit humanitarian atrocities. And that was usually what was attributed to the Palestinians and to their organizations, Hamas and otherwise. So I think that's why it drew so much attention is because sort of winning the argument or, or having the argument and settling the issue there seemed to settle a really fundamental question about the use of violence in its most dominant form, namely by the US and by the West mm -hmm. when it was doing its various humanitarian interventions everywhere from, you know, uh, Kosovo and Somalia to everywhere else. Uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, everywhere. The other thing is that um, I think we saw this particularly vividly post 9-11, but uh, it is somehow, for again, reasons I'm not entirely clear about, mediates the debate about how we're supposed to think about feelings of vulnerability. So whether simply being afraid that someone else's actions or presence makes us vulnerable is justification for retribution and retaliation. The whole, the, the Israel-Palestine conflict in a way that I think is maybe different from other conflicts, although I'm not sure about this, has really been about sort of whose security is supposed to be guaranteed on what terms. And, um, you can see it even now. You have a huge debate in the U.S. over which group of students feels more vulnerable or which group of people feels more vulnerable because of what other people say about yeah. a conflict happening like half a world away. And it's unclear why anyone should give any credit to a feeling of vulnerability here. Hmm. Uh, just because you feel vulnerable or afraid because someone else, because of what they say or do, um, doesn't it is somehow supposed to authorize an intervention on your behalf. Uh, but it's unclear why. And um, that way of connecting claims or feelings of vulnerability to claims about using the state to reassure you about your feelings of being vulnerable is something that the Israel-Palestine conflict has mediated, mediated very centrally. 
I think, um, especially because it has represented a certain kind of solution to that, which is we can make you feel safe by just the concerted use of force against anything and anyone who makes you feel vulnerable. So that's, to me, the sort of three interrelated reasons, but it might be much more banal. It's something about how people learn their politics in college, and this is already an issue that is so all over college campuses that it sort of got institutionalized there and then crowds out um, many other issues. But I, I, I'm. Yeah, you know, no doubt. I, I mean, but I think you that know, plays that would, some kind of background role, but yeah. I'm not sure it's a background role. I mean, I think the, the um, university education is a real and socialization is a real part of it, but I think it amplifies an underlying kind of uh, logic more than it is kind of uh, causal in a, you know, directly causal of the kind of attention and interest that disproportionately yeah. focuses on the conflict. I think you're right. It's kind of incredibly difficult to identify and it certainly is a concaten- concatenation of factors. Um, but if you had to identify a single aspect of it, um, I think you're right that it would be a mistake to think that it's something about the unique character of the conflict itself or the, you know, it's kind of specific dynamics or it's lethality or violence or, or cruelty, because in all of those terms, it's not specifically different from other, com- you know, other long running conflicts that have happened in the post-colonial era. Um, so there are many kind of which are, as we mentioned, kind of worse in if it was purely on a kind of humanitarian calculus of suffering. So um, I think, you know, I suspect you're right. And I think it's I think you must be right that it's to do something with the with the changing status of Israel um, and its relationship to the West. And it's hard to avoid the point, I think, you know, that the way in which it, like you say, the kind of the Jewish question consistently refracts the broader dynamics of um, the changing forms of modern politics. And also that Zionism is, I think, the er form of victim identity politics. And so in an age where victim identity politics is so central and there's so much intense competition over the, um, you know, over the how you justify your claims and your rights on others or to state power that the claim that claim has to be contested and so you know you have this sense you have this um the way in which there's competition for that status for the victim identity politics and also in the context in which the Jewish question changed. So traditionally, the Jewish question was that the Jews were, st- you know, kind of nationless and stateless, and therefore they were co- in cosmopolitan, their loyalties were suspect, and that it flipped more or less in the last 30 years to mm. the problem with the Jews not being that they didn't have a nation, but that they retained a nation state um, in an era which was increasingly trying to abandon the nation state in favor of transnational supranationalism and cosmopolitanism and this was their sin so i think it is you know whatever concatenation of factors it is i think it is kind of um like you say kind of bound up with some of the central themes of modern politics and combined and overlapping with that obviously you have the the constant kind of neural the kind of neuralgic aspect of it which is um and oppressed and dispossessed people who have been, you know, the Palestinians who are bound up with the, um, 
with the state of Israel and whose status in particularly, I mean, not just, but especially in the West Bank and in Gaza has been left unsettled, unresolved. So I think, I mean, I think that has to be part of it. Um, but I'm sure there are others as well. And uh, Alex, uh, Alex, Hokley, George, if there's anything you guys wanted to add to, um, or maybe things, you know, maybe things we've overlooked or maybe challenged the, some things that's been said already. Yeah, I mean, I think I would say there are there definitely are a lot of different factors, but it does seem to me that one of them sort of stands, you know, maybe I'm just being too, I'm just simplifying it too much, but it does seem like that point that you made, Alex, about, you know, the West, what is the West? Like it does seem, what, what does this, conf- this conflict must represent something bigger than itself to to receive, you know, this sort of attention? Um, or at least I, I'm assuming that's the kind of premise in the way you set it up, Phil. And yeah, so I was kind of thinking about this. Is it that the that Israel represents essentially what's good and bad, what's contradictory about the West? Maybe that seems somewhat plausible. But then the question is, well, what does Palestine represent in this kind of frame? Is it the non-West? Is it the anti-West? Is it the failures of the West or even an alternative to the West? I'm, I'm a bit less sure about that. But it does seem that there is there is something about the, you know, the definition of the West that is contained within probably more Israel than Palestine. And that's why the conflict does, I guess permit of all these different readings and all these all these things being able to be poured into it because you know this is a very vague concept um and a very contested one so and i would say you know that alex on your point about how politics is is taught in college or you know history in in school this sort of stuff from a parochial british um perspective it's you know it's world war ii and and nazis and, and tudors more than anything else but then maybe it is when you get to kind of university where that that kind of israel-palestine becomes much more of a of a kind of frame for kind of political but that, would, that would make but that would make sense right i mean if all you teach is world war ii hitler and henry with you know is the usual joke about british education then you set up people to have very strong views about this the role of the jewish state in world mm. politics if you teach yeah. them about the nazis Maybe that's true. Maybe that's it's the next step beyond um, Hitler, Henry. I was trying to think of another age, but I couldn't to complete that kind of trilogy. But yeah, maybe you are right, Phil. Um, yeah, that it, it kind of it needs it leads naturally on to that kind of you know what is the role of Israel as a state in in world politics, as you said. So I mean, I, I like Alex Gurevich's point about victimhood, and and obviously, I think there's. Uh, both both sides can represent a certain kind of like sacralized victim um, for their um, advocates. Um, and it's a place obviously where people go to look for moral certainty, not a huge amount of moral clarity, I think, on display, certainly not over the past two weeks, um, but moral certainty. But that doesn't explain, I guess, why, why it's ta- why it's come to kind of occupy that function. Um, I... <laughs> I kind of read it a little bit as, as a sort of form of zombie politics. I mean, we've, there's a lot of zombie politics about things that kind of exist still as symbols, um, political symbols that people attach themselves to, but where the content has been evacuated or they've lost the thread of why you were doing that in the first place or why you were backing that cause in the first place. Um, and part of it is a, that effectively the Cold War um, polarized the world around this conflict, around many, many others as well. But this one, 
um, in particular. Um, and as that falls away, um, the conflict still retains this symbolic importance, even though it doesn't have, you know, the states don't have, well, you know, you don't have the, the Soviet Union backing um, a lot of Arab states, for example. Um, and on the left, specifically, I think it's it really is zombie politics and identity maintenance. So for the left um, in the West, and I, I mean across the cultural West, because I don't just mean the political West, the Palestinian cause is very big in Latin America, um, for example. So um, I think it represents um, something which used to make sense, at least insofar as it was one amongst many different conflicts in which the Western left offered solidarity as a sort of anti-colonial struggle. Uh, as so many of the left's other commitments fall away, both in terms of having socialism as, a, as an end goal and as something that you might actually believe will be realized in our lifetimes, as well as various other you know, commitments to the cause of the advancement of labor or civil liberties or whatever else, um, all these things fall away. And what remains then is Palestine as this really constitutive element of left, leftist identity. Being a leftist means supporting Palestine. A couple of other things, but Palestine's a pretty big deal in that. Uh, and that then... Um, obscures any deeper questioning of why you might care about the Palestinian cause, thinking critically about what the Palestinians' chances are for uh, having their own state, why the Palestinians having their own state is important. That, that's something that needs to be justified, um, but it isn't. It just is, is held on as a symbolic identity, which is why the left can find itself in a position where it might defend Hamas's attacks, um, because it hasn't really thought through the question. It's just Palestine. Well, Palestine is the good guys. And that's been kind of solidified into a position uh, which doesn't warrant reflection. And it shouldn't uh, be reflected because as the actual stakes there are diminished, its symbolic weight act perversely increases. So the symbolic weight of Palestine becomes ever more important as a kind of element of, of, le of, of leftism. And I think there's there's probably the, its correlates on the right as well. Um, but I'm maybe a little bit less familiar with it or, or maybe have a little no, think, of a less sense of it. I think that's right, Alex. Um, and there are, I mean, there are other elements to it, but I disagree slightly with, you know, the Cold War thing. I mean, we've had 30 years plus perhaps of unipolarity. You know, the Cold War is, um, you know, is kind of behind that. So I think kind of, I mean, I think in some far as the Cold War deposited a tremendous amount of uh, geopolitical significance in the Middle East, it was precisely because it was a region that became contested in the Cold War much earlier than other regions. Um, well, I mean, you know, perhaps I think, you know, so Asia, then the Middle East, and then, you know, Latin America, and then Africa in that order, if you were speaking kind of in broad terms, in terms of the regions that kind of how they were gradually kind of consumed or subsumed within the Cold War. And so there was a legacy of intense where that it became a site of geopolitical meaning for outside powers and it retained this status throughout the era of unipolarity, though obviously in a different way, particularly once the Soviet Union um, had disappeared. But the displacement phenomenon is very significant. And that I think is, again, it's maybe not the central aspect of it, but certainly one of the concatenating factors. So, you know, you can see why, like in a region like Latin America, where so much um, popular politics is bound up with the folk memory, or indeed, in some cases, the ongoing reality of guerrilla struggle and uh, justice associated with popular violence um, and with displacement and revolutionary struggles by guerrillas, it would be unsurprising that Palestine would be kind of a rallying point for the left. Um, 
there's the displacement in the Middle East, right? And this is a point that it was made um, on Twitter recently, is that it's the only kind of area where so many authoritarian Middle Eastern states have any claim to popular legitimacy is over there, um, the state, you know, the position that they take on the international arena with um, with respect to Palestine. And so it's a very dangerous game because they used, you know, they kind of uh, built up the question of Palestine and deliberately kind of um, deliberately stoked anti-Semitism in their own states as a way of deflecting from the failings of the Arab dictatorships and the failure of Arab nationalism and so on. Um, but then it becomes the only kind of popular rallying point in these countries. And so, again, it becomes displacement. And certainly for the right, what's inter- another element of it that's interesting, I think, is that it becomes the kind of the Israel becomes the fantasy state of what they would like to see how their own countries behave. Mm. You know, striking back against terrorists ruthlessly, um, sending out kind of regular kind of uh, droning operations and bombing, bombing operations on neighboring states who are threatening you, um, targeted assassinations of your enemies abroad, um, the persecution, you know, the kind of relentless persecution of terrorists. And so they also kind of have this fantasy of this united, um, determined militarily effective and politically coherent state, which is obviously very far from the truth of Israel. And this this precisely was emerging to the surface with the all the tensions around um, the policies of the Netanyahu government prior to the Hamas attacks and its attempt to kind of restructure Israel's, the constitutional role of Israel's courts. So anyway, it becomes this site of displacement for all these different kind of um, regions, for all these different political systems, both for the left and the right, in all these kind of complex and enduring ways, and the displacement continues to metamorphose. Um, And I suppose that's what's most um, striking about it, is the fact that it continues to kind of exhibit all these these, uh, tendencies. And I think, you know, and this, I, I, I assume everything that each of us say is going to be raked over by our listeners and also by people who don't listen to us, but we'll hear what we say um, on the internet and elsewhere. But I think also part of the reason, one of the displacement is, and I've seen this, um, particularly from left-wing academics, there is a perverse delight in cataloging Israeli atrocities um, because there is some, you know, there is some kind of, um, and I can't, I'm not uh, well versed enough in psychoanalysis to precisely kind of line it up in the exact way, but there is, it seems to me, on the European left, a delight in drawing attention to Israel to the cruelty of Israeli policy um, in a way that satisfies and essentially expiates the guilt of the European left over the Holocaust. I think. Um, because the implication is like, you know, there is a deep satisfaction in seeing the Jews kind of treat another people so cruelly and so wantonly. Um, and that provides satisfaction, I think, as well. Um, and it's kind of the implication being, look, you know, like, um, look at what these people are doing. Did they learn nothing? Let me let me just um, raise a, a quick counterpoint to that, because it's on the, on the German left where it's more the most semitophile left um, in, in Europe. Um, and where being um, extremely anti-Zionist, anti-Israeli is uh, the least well seen. And that's a place where there is ostensibly the greatest amount of historical guilt. So I'm not sure that 
Well, you say that, Alex, time. right? But we spoke about this with the Bader-Meinhof thing, right? And I'm not, I'm not suggesting it's like it's a determining phenomenon or the most important kind of explanatory phenomenon. But I'm saying as, as one of the dynamics of displacement, I'm convinced that part of it is the European kind of European society, insofar as the left is part of European society, is kind of shedding the burden of having to um, account for collaboration for participation, for indifference to everything that was done under Nazi occupation. Um, and so part of that is by drawing attention to, um, you know, drawing attention to what the Israelis, uh, what the Israelis do in the occupied territories to the Palestinians. There was a similar, I mean, I'm sure our German listeners might be familiar about it, but there was a similar dynamic, say, with the wars in former Yugoslavia. The delight with which the German press, for instance, the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung and others, the Süddeutsche Zeitung, the delight with which they drew attention to um, atrocities committed by the Serbs and that were portrayed as being exterminatory, genocidal and so on, because it was a way of overcoming the, or you know, making the fact that it's not only the Germans who do these terrible things, there are other people who do it too. And so I if there's an opportunity to do that with the Israelis, you know, then that is the golden, the golden ticket there. I think that might be you, you sort of, uh, it's an interesting thought, but I think it's sort of catching um, the extra bit people might get in their national context, but missing the core uh, jouissance that people get from cataloging atrocity, which is that it's become one of the dominant ways of just exercising power, or at least feeling like you exercise power. Yeah. If I can show, because, you know, you see it on the left in the US too. If I can show that they didn't just commit an atrocity, but that it's specially heinous or hideous, then that already seems to give me a certain kind of power because one of the dom it's that language has been the dominant way of trying to do politics and establish who has claims on power, who has claims to exercise power, who is within the bounds of the civilized use of violence and who is outside it. But that's and the point. It's, the Jewish and, state the Jewish state yeah. has a powerful claim on all of that, right? right? So how do you kind of dislodge how do you dislodge the Jewish state's claims? To all of to when politics becomes so centered on claims of victim identity and violence, like you say, yeah. and power becomes justified along those lines, it becomes imperative to try and dislodge those claims of legitimacy that are particularly monopol, you know, that seem to be monopolized yeah. by the Jewish state. And I'm that Europeans, I mean, I don't doubt it happens in America too, but that Europeans will feel it most keenly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I. Well, there's two things on that. One is I just want to observe that it also exposes this weirdly contradictory relationship that the left has to the Israel-Palestine question, because on the one hand, they still want to hold on to the hope. And one source of attachment is that it seems to be the last place where some kind of old school national liberation conflict is still taking, still in effect, still happening. And that's, and that sort of leads to this very distorted understanding of what Hamas is. And, that, that's and happening and has value, right? Because So somehow, and has value, right? So somehow, at the same time as you have these people that are the most abject victims, they're also engaged in sort of the, the last 20th century struggle for self-emancipation. And it's sort of this very whipsaw kind of thing. Um, but, the, but to your point, Phil, um, 
I think that it there's no way to solve the problem directly. So if it's true that some of what people get out of it and some of the attachment to the Israel-Palestine question is that it is um, it mediates this wider debate about how to think about um, the legitimate use of violence, force, and power. And the central problem with it is that we only understand this in terms of who are the victims and who are the killers, right? Who are who who is who is atrocious from a, and and worthy of condemnation from a moral point of view versus who is righteously defending themselves from victimization. Uh, I think the there's there's no way to change that directly by making an argument about Israel and Palestine directly. I don't think it's to it's to just change the way we think about politics whenever we're thinking about politics. So uh, this was the you know what I have been trying to think about the last I guess now it's been twelve days is just sort of what it would mean to try to get political clarity on a situation rather than moral clarity. So instead of trying to do as tends to be done to figure out who's the most victimized and therefore the side we're on because they're good because preventing victimization is a good thing and who's bad and evil because they're the bigger victimizers is to kind of try and understand the actual political context and get clear on the political context that we're intervening in, um, which is very hard to do if we just show up with very a very moralistic approach to politics, because you really just can't see what's going on. We can't even see the role that our moral judgments are playing in politics if all we're trying to do is come up with a really morally clear and unambiguous judgment about mm -hmm. who's in the right and who's in the wrong. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I think it ends up leading perversely to a lot of kind of very immoral <laughs> defenses of, of violence yeah. um, because we can't really let uh, the political reality of the situation and the power relations that exist and why they are there and what the effects of certain acts tend to be kind of speak for them, you know, be what they are because, yeah. you know, trying to, trying to figure out who is the more victimized just doesn't really allow any kind of complexity, not just doesn't allow any context in, because then you can just have an argument about which context is the context that tells us who was more victimized. You know, it, it doesn't allow a political context to be the one, and it makes it harder to then get clear on the issues that really have to get settled. Okay, so those are some. I mean, I we didn't we don't offer those as anything which is definitive, or especially um, or especially systematic. But some thoughts which we hope you know we hope listeners find useful, and I'm sure um, I'm sure there are elements which we've overlooked. Which um, you know, feel free to to let us know if you think there are kind of vital elements that we've overlooked. But we don't we want to talk in want to talk in a in a more kind of systematic and structured way about the dynamics of the current episode of the conflict um, between Hamas and Israel. And Alex Gorovich has written um, a piece which is due to be published um, 
in short order. And so keep your eyes hopefully, out for it, listeners, yeah. Yeah, hopefully, when it's published in due course. So you can see the document that we're going to be discussing. But Alex is going to talk us through it in any case, or some of it at least. He's going to talk us through it in any case. Um, and so what um, the document is kind of organized as a series of theses about the conflict. And so it's useful some useful points that we can kind of organize our discussion around as well. So I wanted to just address the first one, which is also perhaps the most, um, the most difficult to accept perhaps, and also the most provocative, which is you argue in the piece, Alex, and so tell us why you argue in the piece, there is no side worth choosing, um, which seems kind of very, um, very brutal but tell us why you say that. And between, you know, all the kind of atrocity stories that are coming out between people being slaughtered, the Hamas, kind of the civilians slaughtered by Hamas, the civilians dying under Israeli bombs, um, you know, haplessly and defenseless yeah. in Gaza. How can you say there's no side worth choosing? Yeah. So just to give context for this, I suppose what I'm trying to do is not make one statement, but to try to first just get a grasp on the situation as a, a complex multidimensional problem. So I'll say what I mean about this first one, but it sort of uh, only stands as a reality that I think we have to face if we also face all the other realities and put see them as a whole. Um, um, so the first reality that I find uncomfortable to face um, and these are, you know, sometimes when people talk about, oh, we got to face a reality, what they're really saying is other people need to do it, but not themselves. So this is not what I'm saying. I'm saying I myself <laughs> find this an uncomfortable feature of the current situation is there seems to yeah. me at once uh, a feeling that one must take a side because, you know, there's immense violence and it is horrifying violence and Violence seems to matter a lot more in politics than a lot of other things. Just about every, than everything said on Twitter, for instance, you know, it's sort of, you can take, we take a, a thousand positions a day and they're all pretty much meaningless because they're not connected to anything of any particular consequence, but now there is violence. So it seems like, you know, we've got to know whose side are we on. And then the problem it seems to me is that the violence being used is pointless. So when I say that the first kind of problem I face then, which is oh, well, who's, whose side to take is, I cannot see that there is any side worth taking, neither the side of Hamas nor the side of Israel. Not because uh, I'm trying to find some position of moral superiority, like I mourn all human lives, I mourn all the dead equally, so I'm not taking one side or the other. That's not the, that's not not what I mean by saying we, we can't take, there's no side to choose because I think that position actually plays badly in politics anyway. Uh, it's more that there's no one who is, no one who represents a settlement to the current conflict that would be a true resolution to it. And therefore nobody whose violence is anything but pointless. So on the one hand, Hamas, which is the only real organized representative of the Palestinians, and I imagine we'll go on to talk about just 
what that means. In Gaza. In Gaza, yeah. Well, right, we'll, we'll get to that. But, I mean, they're the only ones using violence. Hamas is a dead end. It's a deeply anti-Semitic organization that doesn't recognize any claims for Israeli Jews to live as equals, or perhaps at all, anywhere on that land. Um, and they are not committed in any way to any kind of democratic form of political organization. So they have pretty much only religious war and sectarian violence to offer. And it seems to me Israel offers a kind of semi-secular version of the same. Um, And again, it's because neither is actually interested in resolving the political question, which is how Palestinians and Israelis uh, could rec- well, I should say how Palestinians and Israeli Jews could recognize their valid claims to self-rule in that territory. And so when I say I think that they're both sides' violence is pointless, it's not because I think violence itself is always pointless, but because the political projects that the two sides represent are. Um, so let me... just lies in Israel's massively disproportionate capacity to meet out violence. But there's no popular organized power with a credible claim to emancipate anyone. So let me, well, let me challenge, so let me challenge you on that point, because what you, so what you could say in response is, and I, in in Duke, we'll come to kind of Hamas and more in due course, but you could say, okay, so you look at Hamas's charter, you know, it's essentially a caliphist organization, um, you know, kind of, like you say, kind of committed to religious sectarianism and holy war. And so, you know, you can accept that its violence has no um, prospect of resolving, of meaningfully resolving the conflict, any violence that it does. On the other hand, Israel, for all its sins, um, is nonetheless a a liberal democracy. Um, It has, uh, you know, it has kind of legally recognized status in world affairs simply by virtue of being a constituted state. It has changed, you know. It has kind of changes of government. It has kind of popular, popular contestation. Also, a diverse and vibrant civil society. Plenty of opposition to the current government of Netanyahu, as was evident before this mm. conflict mm. erupted. And so, mm. surely, by virtue of all of those things and many others, you know, it's uh, civil liberty and so on. And Notwithstanding everything you could say about its uh, discrimination and treatment of its Palestinian minority mm-hmm. who live in Israel, as well mm-hmm. as the occupying its occupation policies in the West Bank and what have you, nonetheless, mm-hmm. it still is able to, on your measure, it's still able to wield as a state, it's able to wield violence in such a way that it can reestablish political order. Why is Why do you say that it's not able to, or its violence is the, in term, it's the political meaning of its violence is no different to that of Hamas. I, uh, just because I think it's committed in its current form to permanent disorder. It is, all of its liberal democratic elements are limited by the underlying commitment to provide absolute security for its Jewish population at the expense of insecurity for everybody else. And that is the organization of force for the purpose of creating permanent disorder, Right. You have to, the only way in which you can continue to, um, the only way in which you can provide that underlying security guarantee for only a part of your population, the Jewish part, and remain a Jewish state, is by refusing to offer reasonable terms to the rest. And it means you must constantly create the disorder that you then end up fighting. Um, I think that was already clear during the Oslo peace process, 
But it's been especially clear since the defeat of the Oslo process, um, or the end, we should say, I guess you could call it a defeat, when Israel just decided that it was going to create an open-air prison for Gazans um, and kind of transform the PA into sort of a quasi, sort of postmodern version of a colonial gendarme force to police the West Bank population and intensify the domination and subordination of its internal um, Israeli, Arab, or Palestinian population. And that the fragmentation of Palestinians across these three forms of jurisdiction was itself an attempt to totally pacify them by force. So to me, the underlying point is that it is not able to act as a state that can in fact guarantee the rights of all those subject to its um, power simply in virtue of the authority that it has over them. Because in fact, it's only committed to the security of part of that population, its Jewish population. And that's then what has created a situation with breeds violence, right? If you have just announced, if you've just made it clear that you're going to relate to part of the population, um, if, if you're going to deal with part of the population simply by force and suppress them by force, then that, that produces insecurity and violence. It doesn't settle it. Um, and so while I, I kind of understand the scenario as you describe it, I think, unfortunately, its violence ends up being just as pointless. You produce an insecurity that you then say you're going to protect your population from. What do you guys? What do you guys think on this point, Alex and George? Well, I mean, you know, Israel, I think, is the the actor in the the conflict which has greater room for maneuver. They hold more cards and have held more cards for a longer time. Um, and simply on that basis, I mean, this isn't to say that one should back that there's a side to back or, or, or not. Um, I agree with Alex's, uh, Gurevich's point about there being not a side to back, but merely I think it has to be recognized that um, simply saying backing Israel in the conflict, as, as Phil is saying, ignores the fact that the, the greater onus lies on an Israeli solution to the to the conflict. Um, what, I mean, and by solution, I mean one in which uh, Palestinians and uh, Israelis can live together in, in peace and some sort of order. Um, because they hold the cards to be able to implement that situation. I think the Palestinians' room for maneuver is, is um, pretty limited beyond um, beyond uh, waving the white flag, I think, at this stage. But it's, it's, it's interesting what you say, Alex, because it means that one of the strange, I mean, you could say one of the strange dialectics of the post-Oslo moment, but that might be giving it a little too much grandiosity, but I'm not sure, is that you know, Oslo was the last attempt to seriously consider, uh, maybe it was always a sham, who knows, but to seriously consider the idea that there were two nations that could have two separate states in that territory. There could be an actual two properly constituted states. Once done, Israel decided instead to just sort of contain the Palestinians by force. And it was that decision that I think made it clear that there's only one state. There's I've, just the yeah. Israeli state. So, so, when so I, yeah. Well, I mean, so when I, when I say, you know, Israel holding the cards, I mean, one of the cards that it could have played um, at some point along this process, presumably in the early 1990s, would have been 
for example, to say, okay, well, there needs to be some sort of exchange here um, so that there might be that there might be peace, there might be coexistence. And if that might, it might not be, a, you know, the two state solution, in fact, very much the contrary it might be that uh, Israel says peace and democracy, but we're taking we're taking all the land. I mean, this is I'm not advocating that um, course of action, but I'm just mm. illustrating the fact that that would have been one which where you say to the Palestinians, look, you're not going to have a Palestinian state, we're going to have a democratic, secular, uh, multinational state in this whole so- territory. Sorry, I, I, I totally get that. I guess I'm just, yes, what I'm thinking about here, though, was the original question of how to understand, you know, why why do I say there's no side to take? Uh, to me, that's a different question. I'm just trying to understand the political reality that I see, and then in response to which form some opinions. So that's a different question from what could I imagine saying that would be a good solution if it were possible? Oh, so I mean, just to be just but, clear, my case was made more against Phil's point that one should support Israel because Israel is a state and a liberal democracy, um, rather than a, as against your your observation, Alex. Right, but it's just that's not this. That would require saying to the to the government it has to give up on providing only one ethnic group a security guarantee. That that's a that's a profound transformation of the one state that exists in that territory because you'd have to say you'd have to invert the relationship between its jewish character and its liberal democratic character the liberal de- democratic feature would have to be the defining and primary feature about it there's no part that i can see there's no organized force uh, in Israel that that even comes close to representing that its government certainly doesn't and that's mm-hmm. the one using violence so and it's it's unclear you know while there was something great about the reaction to the, the mass protests against the um, judicial and proposed legislative reforms in Israel it was notable that in all of that although it was in some sense anomaly a reaction against the pending repeal of of attack on Palestinian citizenship, it's kind of notable that it didn't actually end up doing much to directly address the question of the territories at all. So you had, it was still in a sense, democratic activity constrained entirely as an internal activity among Jews, right? Mm. And Jewish organizations. So uh, Israeli Jews, Uh, of course, not down to the man and woman, but you know what I mean? Mm. So, um, this is this is the thing is when we see the major organized forces on both sides of this conflict just seem to me to be political dead ends. One trying to use force, uh, e- e- equally engaged in pointless exercises and violence that yeah. can do nothing to even guarantee the security in whose name um, the violence is exercised. Yeah, I mean, I think you know personally the kind of the, the starting point of there being no side worth choosing is appealing to the extent that it's almost is the transgression of that of the primary rule of the moral framing which you know alex h i think earlier you made you know made the point people go for moral certainty to this and that's one of the things that clearly this this conflict gives gives people and to kind of put that to one side maybe that is the precondition of some of the political analysis or the political perspective rather than a moral one is essentially saying that you know there isn't a moral um there isn't a moral choice here so but perhaps moving on because there's a i think it's a it's a great piece and hopefully it will will be published in in short order so uh listeners can can read it in full 
but I guess this also follows on from what you were just talking about, Alex, um, Alex G, that is. So the second thesis is that um, Hamas is less and less an expression of wider geopolitical realities. What do you, what do you mean by this? So um, just a small parenthesis before I proceed is I find this first point that there are no sides to take almost unendurable. I mean, I don't, I don't, I take zero pleasure from it. I don't, you know, someone said, oh, it's an appealing point. And like, I suppose it is, but I find it, you know, the Palestinians are one of the most enormously oppressed groups in the world at the moment, at least those who suffer in Gaza. So, you know, on top of everything else, as someone who kind of believes in universal human freedom, I find it a deeply unsettling thing to, to consider that there is just no side to take at the moment. So but isn't, isn't that, that it's, isn't that part of the reason why you have to take no side because the moral, like the moral imperative is so, you know, I don't want to be a kind of an edge lord about it, but you know, the moral imperative is so great. So that's the first thing you have to, to reject for a clear headed analysis. Anyhow, it may be. Uh, it I may be. For Hamas, I mean, this is, uh, it, over the last few days, I was, it, it sort of came to me just how potentially isolated Hamas is. Um, when I actually, I was listening to a podcast that Helen Thompson does with uh, some guy for Unheard, I think it's called These Times, and they were talking about the kind of regional geopolitical context. Uh, so I can't remember the the, the guy's the other host's name, but um, and they were talking about the the development of these um, of regional diplomacy and pointing out that. Uh, you know, all of the shifts that have happened over the last 10, 15 years, gradual Iranian rapprochement with the US, Saudi normalization with Israel, China negotiating relations with Saudi, Saudi Arabia and Iran, um, that they are all predicated on the Palestinian question somehow being settled. And there are strategic reasons why these various regimes have pursued this. They've got economic interests that they're pursuing. And, you know, Iran wants closer ties with China. China, you know, peace is good for business. War is bad for business is sort of the Chinese approach to diplomacy. So you see this shifting of the ground, which requires them to implicitly and perhaps explicitly start cutting ties with Hamas. And it actually reminded me of a talk I heard ages ago at Oxford about how, in fact, the Iranians... Um, found it easier to deal with Hezbollah than Hamas. And uh, um, that in some ways it kind of means that all of the post-Oslo force and discipline and control and surveillance and domination that the Israelis have exercised over the Palestinians in order to try to turn them into a wholly pacified population is sort of like Israel doing the dirty work for the region. Because these authoritarian um, sort of Middle Eastern regimes do get some popular authority through the issue, but they don't really want to be accountable to their own population. And so they can only make these moves that draw them closer to the US and Israel if the Palestinian question is sort of submerged. And that is, I think, what sort of happened is that Hamas in particular and the Palestinians generally have in that way become increasingly this just like surplus population that nobody wants to deal with 
and that suffers for that fact. And so, you know, one one problem I actually think of concentrating exclusively on what Israel has done to the Palestinians is to miss this broader shift, geopolitical shift that has, I think, meant that Hamas is much more isolated than it had been. And if there was a geopolitical, a regional geopolitical context for Hamas's actions, it was far less likely, it, it's probably more likely the fact that it was really only thinking about its own interests because they've been forced into this sort of much more isolated position. I'm not sure. There, uh, yeah, there, there, I, I, there's a lot of things that go on underneath the surface I might not be aware of, but it occurs to me that this is a pretty important feature of the situation um, that, that, that also matters really, when we're thinking about it. Yeah. Really, That all sounds really plausible. And I think, I mean, this is something that we that I discussed with Jacob Siegel in the, in the previous episode to kind of elaborate on that point, it seems that then Hamas's attack is um, a plea against irrelevance, um, right? quite strategically done and, and done at, at, a, at a very apposite moment, and one which they may, it obviously, it's very much dependent on the outcome of Israel's uh, putative land invasion of Gaza, um, and what they actually aim to do and what they're able to achieve, uh, the Israelis are able to achieve there. But nevertheless, that the, the Hamas at least has been, um, in the short term, successful in making themselves relevant and not forgotten and to perhaps put on ice a little bit the Saudi-Israeli rapprochement. Um, perhaps Iran feels compelled to um, to re-engage and um, see what its proxy Hezbollah can do as a way of, of disrupting these plans. Um, although, you know, the, the, the United States is also doing its bit there in, in, in trying to normalize relations with, with Iran. And so there's a lot of kind of strings being pulled from various sides here, but um, certainly Hamas has tried to interrupt a process that was ongoing. I think I, I agree with your, your depiction of um, the, the regional context being of Hamas's relevance. Hamas has made a big bloody call to be relevant. So that, I mean, that ties directly into a subsequent thesis in your in your um, document, Alex Gorovich, um, yeah. which is about the relationship between the, Pal- the Palestinians and their use of violence. So yeah. you said Hamas, you've kind of in the document, in the argument, and we've already talked about it on this on the pod just now, that Hamas is a dead end, but that doesn't exhaust the question of violence in the conflict. Um, because you say one of the deep issues is that the world only pays attention to the Palestinians when they are violent, and only right. more so now. So, what is right. the? I mean, I think that you know, I mean, I think that claim is, uh, you know, kind of self-evident, I suppose, in many ways. But what's the implication of what you're saying there? So, so here's the that's, that's I suppose like a kind of a third point, which is directed at the kind of moralistic requirement that we denounce violence. <laughs> so, and, and that we're supposed to denounce violence before we talk about any other feature, right? It's sort of like a calling card, or let's just say it's more like ideological border control. You're not allowed in until you denounce violence, or at least any violence that's considered sort of um, immoral and humane, inhumane and um, and then the border police will let you through. It's like showing your papers, you know, in discourse, something. And 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 people will say that. A lot of people will will say this about violence, even as they say, yes, but I recognize the Palestinians are very oppressed, and that that's a problem too. And so, the I find the killing of civilians horrific. 
um, or even sort of the use of violence that's poorly planned and very likely to lead to horrific massacres of civilians. But I, but it's just another feature that strikes me from having watched and paid attention to this issue for 20 years. And again, this is a, an empirical observation. I'm not in any way um, approving or condemning this fact. It just seems to me a reality of the situation, which is when Palestinians are nonviolent, they are just ignored. When they use violence, not only do loads of people pay attention to them, but the violence can sometimes be effective against the oppression they face. And people don't want to accept that fact. Uh, so, you know, most people I talk to don't know that there was a large nonviolent march in Gaza a few years ago, which uh, the Israelis met with violence. They just shot the protesters. So it's not like they haven't tried that. They've done hunger strikes. They have done mass nonviolent protests. Hamas ran in elections in 2006 and were met with the combined force of Israel, the United States, and Fatah, and had the results overthrown by them in the West Bank. So it's people just, they're either ignored or suppressed when they try the nonviolent stuff. And then when they do violence, it causes immense crisis, not just for them, but for the Israeli regime and for many other regional powers who then have to stop paying attention, you know, sorry, can no longer simply ignore them. And that but is you're a, saying, but you're saying this is one of the dynamics by which the dead end is reproduced. I mean, is that the implication of what you're saying? So they have, they're ignored, yeah. but when they use violence, all it does is kind of um, because their because their violence can't go anywhere. Right. Um, all it does is kind of bind them more tightly. So yes, I mean the the real bind is that if they are nonviolent, they're ignored. If they use violence, they appear to have authored their own destruction. Uh, because whenever they use violence, no matter how they do it, it is always condemned as unacceptable. And therefore, they can be made a target. And the violence is what has to end first before anything else can happen. So yeah. that's like the basic dynamic. I think it is sometimes the case that the violence is even effective in a way nothing else is. So... Uh, I'm not sure. I am. It's an open question to me whether when they use violence, it just reproduces the dynamic, as you say, Phil, because then it just produces more violence to suppress the violence and it just recreates the kind of victims and killers kind of dynamic. But here it seems to me that what they did, in fact, because it was so spectacular, not in the good sense, just a horrific spectacle and so extreme, produced such a reaction from Israel that I think it has possibly broken something that just won't cause the crisis that will not allow things to go on as they were before. So um, I think it's a and, and let me put it this way. I think this fact about the use of violence by Palestinians cannot be reduced to simply the fact that Hamas is of Hamas's ideological beliefs and commitments. It's a feature of the relationship that has been created with the Palestinians as a whole. They are just ignored if they don't use violence and try nonviolent tactics. They, there's 
attention is only paid when they use violence. And therefore the situation generates the very violence that it says it's not, um, it's, it's organized to try to stop. Yeah. So, um, so you, you wanted to come in, um, Alex Oakley. Yeah. I mean, I, this, I, the points that, um, Alex Gurevich made about, you know, the the paradox, um, and maybe even the, the kind of catch 22 in which the Palestinians are caught, I think are correct. I find the whole discussion around violence and the, discussion that's ensued over the past couple of days, but always ensues whenever uh, this emerges or whenever there is some resistance, violent resistance from the Palestinians or uh, action on the part of the Israelis. Uh, This discussion about violence is always incredibly hypocritical on all sides and incredibly confused, I think, because it always becomes a discussion about means, um, about what about whether violence is legitimate or not, which is hypocritical on all sides because everyone accepts the use of violence, tolerates it, and it actually is in favor of it, bar a tiny number of genuine pacifists who are too small to even um, really pay, pay any attention to. So everybody accepts the use of violence. Um, it depends to, to what end. Um, there are obviously qualifications one can make about the type of violence that is used, the deliberate um, targeting of civilians, which I think we can just agree you know, right now that we all abhor that and is not legitimate. But there's lots of collateral damage that happens. And if you support violence, uh, if you back the use of violence to achieve political ends and accept that that is necessary at times, then you're going to have collateral damage and you can try to minimize that and you can lament it when it happens. It's such a terrible fucking phrase. It should be banned on the podcast. So I'm banning it now. Collateral damage is banned. Well, collateral damage. Yeah, okay. It's a terrible phrase. It is, I agree. But anyway. Civilian casualties. Civilian casualties, you're right. It's uh, the, the, the euphemism is obscures the the nature of it um but there's little questioning then of what ends are actually achieved about the politics that um violence is um is wedded to right so like the the discussion goes well the palestinians aren't allowed to commit violence well israel israel causes this violence okay so what violence so the palestinians are allowed to um resist violently uh yes then the left goes well then we defend that and what defended irrespective of who is carrying out the violence in the in this case Hamas, which is a dead end, um, which is which whose ultimate ends, even if its proximate ends are uh, Palestinian liberation, its ultimate ends are uh, nothing to do with liberation at all. It's just pure oppression. It's a caliphate, um, and the fact that it's unable politically to achieve its ends, those get all obscured because the left has set itself up as the defender of the Palestinians and radical, and therefore ra- radical means being willing to defend. Uh, the use of violence, and I think that's you know, yeah, that's really, radical really, means and, rather than radical ends. I well, mean, I think exactly. that's right. And, and on and on the 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 side of most Western capital, nearly all Western capitals, uh, the establishments of Western capitals and the European and North American right, um, the same thing prevails there as well. Um, little questioning about to what end uh, Israeli violence is is used. Yeah, but it's worse on the left because the left should have an end in mind, whereas the right only needs to kind of you know think about how to kind of perpetuate or justify the status quo. Yeah. So yeah. the fact that the left kind of obscures the question of what the ends are, I mean, I think mm. I, it's not an accident, right? That they it is exactly how the left. The left avoids its political responsibility and its historic responsibility of thinking about ends is by, like you say, kind of in this context, thinking purely about means. And so they end up in this trap where resistance is legitimate. This is violent resistance and therefore we support it rather than thinking about the ends. Um, yeah. I mean, so I think that's right. It's also part of the moral framing as well, right? That if it 
if that's yeah. your if that's your starting point, then you'll talk about violence being justified or legitimate. But if you have a political end in mind, you'd be more likely to talk about it being effective or likely to to bring mm. that about. Yeah. So you know, and that is definitely you know justified, legitimate. It's it's kind of you know obviously we've we've you know discussed the kind of the victim framing, but it does seem like these two things are very closely related. So I'm going to make another, you know, I think to return to your first thesis, Alex, that's the, you know, that's how you, you kind of have mm. to take that, that painful step almost. And then you can, because only then is there a political analysis of the violence possible. Otherwise you're going to be always drawn back into that, you know, self-defense justification frame rather than a political effectiveness one, which leads you to questions of political ends, which is crucial. So I wanted to move to um, uh, the next thesis you claim here, Alex, which you say the West is implicated in the violence it denounces um, because yeah. it denounces it. The West moralized violence, which creates callousness. And yeah. so, you know, I I can, this is a, it's a complicated twist in the structure of your argument. Well, maybe not complicated, but it's a twist in the structure of the argument and one which perhaps is liable to misinterpretation just on the face of it. So I want to give you the, you know, kind of the space to, to explain it out. Um, why is the West implicated in, in the violence and what is, why would denouncing, denouncing violence implicate you in it? Yeah. So, um, to, this is where I have kind of the biggest problem with the emphasis on denouncing crimes against humanity and make and and turning politics into the question of um, just who has used violence in a morally acceptable versus morally unacceptable way. Is that it? It kind of uh, bypasses some really essential political questions that leads people either to talk in bad faith or to be quite unaware of uh, what they're actually doing. So as a piece of political context, it's worth thinking about why Hamas is sort of this last man standing in Palestinian politics. So uh, the reason is that Israel, with the assistance of the U.S. and uh, in the context of the kind of defeat of the Arab left and Arab nationalism in the region, destroyed all of the other secular liberation movements that represented the Palestinians, either by literally destroying them or by co-opting them or by repressing them. And, you know, most notably, this is what happens with the PLO and eventually the PA, or what's left of it as the, the post-Arafat kind of rump organization that just collaborates with, um, collaborates with Israel. And um, in fact, even at times, Israel used Hamas as a counterweight to undermine support and to fragment the Palestinian cause. But once the, all of the secular forms of Palestinian representation had been destroyed, Hamas was the only one that remained as the independent uh, representative of Palestinian interests, the only organized body that in any way spoke for Palestinians and was able to represent them in a way that does, didn't look like they were just some collaborationist group like 
what Fatah ended up has ended up becoming. Now, why does this matter? What's the point here? It's because um, when in politics, part of what matters is a group's ability to represent themselves on their own terms, under their own authority. And when the language of morality is then introduced as this sort of um, line drawing between groups that are allowed in at all in political conversation and are considered valid or legitimate presence in politics versus those who are not, then what the moral language did, especially if hum- this sort of humanitarian moral language around violence did, is force pal- Palestinians into an impossible choice. It meant either they denounce Hamas as, you know, immoral, horrific, brutal killers, but then be left with no valid political representatives whatsoever. They would have had to disavow that they have any form of independent political representation at all, or to refuse to, you know, enter into this moral uh, dispute so as to preserve the legitimacy of the one remaining representative of them. And when you force people into that choice, then in some ways, quite understandably, they're going to just reject this supposedly universal moral language as just another form in which they're dominated. It will generate moral callousness. This is just another way in which you try to delegitimate us, make it impossible for us to engage in any political conversation about the core questions, where the core questions are who has what kind of claims and who has what kind of authority in the land, right? You can't get there without first playing the moral game of denouncing and rejecting. Then um, the morality becomes this weird anti-political way of resolving political arguments. And of course, then you can understand why large numbers of Palestinians would end up becoming callous right? Because it looks like, well, then screw it. I just refuse to accept the, 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 the kind of humanitarian demands that you make on how we think about violence, because it is in fact a way of undermining our ability to conduct politics and our ability to actually have independent political representation and to press our claims as political claims. And I think that, so then you know, it means that there's a that, that the West is implicated because it dodges and refuses to face the central core political questions. Again, who has a valid claim to the land and on what terms? That it generates a dynamic which forces people to choose. I mean, I think Israel, Palestine, I think Palestinians, I tell that story because I don't think it's even fact even unique to the Israel-Palestine question. I think you can see this kind of thing happening in the Russia-Ukraine and a lot of other places, and it was a general feature of humanitarianism as such, that it is a language that by trying to create this kind of boundary between the civilized and the uncivilized, sets anyone else, anyone who's on the opposite side, on the wrong side of that civilized and uncivilized boundary, is simply not allowed into politics which is a way of trying to kind of resolve political questions without facing them directly. And so that's the sense in which I think the, the this moralized sort of line drawing about violence, which dominates an attempt to understand the politics, 
is in fact implicated in the violence and generates callousness because you force people with political claims to kind of seem to have to reject that morality itself simply in order to um, retain some sense of being independent of the side that wants to dominate them. So that that is the thought that I had there. Um, and the, the, the underlying point of it was to say that I think that that means there's something potentially quite morally irresponsible about trying to so thoroughly moralize violence. Because <laughs> when you do this and then you generate callousness and you make people think, well, fine, I just don't recognize the boundary between civilian and military or anything like this, because anytime I have to engage in this debate, I can see that what it's really doing is trying to delegitimate my side undermine its moral authority entirely before we even, you know, approach the political questions, then it's, it's supposedly moral discourse is actually deeply immoral because it will just produce a, a, a kind of callousness um, uh, and willingness to commit the kind of violence um, and where the other side can't even understand this form of the reaction. So I, ho I hope that... Uh, Alex, you had a quick, just a quick point, because I do want to move on yeah, to our no, next I, question. It's a question to Alex Gurevich. I mean, I understand what you're saying with regard to morality. Does that also apply to claims about justice, which are people try to make them uh, be foundational to nation formation, nation building, um, the establishment of a nation state that, you know, Palestinians deserve to have a nation state. Israelis deserve to have a nation state, and the condition of that is uh, the expulsion of Palestinians or not, or whatever. Um, that did, is the logic of your argument that those claims, which have a moral content to them, should also be disregarded um, in with the aim of instead just thinking politically. And think politically means kind of, to a certain extent, drawing a line under history and going, okay, let's think through this conflict from the position of now or whatever, wherever you want to draw now. Now hmm. might be 2005 or it might be 1994, but, you know, um, that at a certain point you just go, okay, we need to resolve this politically and that we, we start from there and not try to litigate claims about justice, um, which can be infinitely recursive, but certainly all the way back to, you know, the, the mid-1940s. I suppose all I'd say there is that it seems to me that um, there's a political way of thinking about justice, and then there's this or moralistic way of thinking about it. So the moralistic one is this retrospective attempt to correct all historic injustices um, by figuring out who is sort of culpable and who has been grieved and haggling over every past detail and that is indeed, you know, um, uh, something that will, I think, tend to gent irresolvable conflict and violence. Uh, or you can think about justice politically, which is trying to figure out what set of institutions for the living would um, be just. That is to say, would allow everyone to relate to each other under fair terms that it's reasonable to expect everyone to accept. Mm. Um, and that's the kind of, that's the kind of question that it seems to me is the one that gets him is just suppressed. Yeah. Right? Um, and it relates to the first thesis I have, which is it just doesn't seem to me there's any side that really even wants to start that question and put that question in motion. 
So that takes us to your kind of the um, the payoff thesis, I suppose, the hard one, which mm. is, as as you frame it in the document, the reality for the left, Hamas is no anti-colonial freedom struggle. Mm. And this, I mean, we've touched or kind of circled around it's um, the question of Hamas's charter, Hamas's political claims, um, well. and I suppose we can tackle it directly now, but particularly because... Uh, the way in which it's been framed on the left outside of outside of Israel and Palestine, at least, is often in decolonial terms. And some of the most egregious uh, kind of statements about the, which have been seen, you know, like uh, by the left is this idea that um, because all, um, all civilians in Israel are settlers, therefore they're all kind of implicated and therefore there's no distinction between combatants and non-combatants. And so, there's that effacement under the language of decolonial oppression of settlers, of imperialism, of colonialism. Yeah. All of those frames are very kind of bound up with the way in which um, the conflict is addressed on the left. So how is it, how do you, what's your kind of, um, right. how do you put it then that Hamas is no anti-colonial freedom struggle? Uh I mean, I understand why people want it to be, you know, it's easy to forget what it's like. Well, now that there was actually a horrific act of violence, it's forced everyone to pay attention and to just recognize, at least face some of the facts about how Palestinians live, especially in Gaza, right? It's, it's, it's an open air prison. Israel, Israel controls the flow of goods, services, you know, uh, drugs and health supplies, water, electricity, even controls sort of flow of currency. You know, it's, it has blockaded the more than 2 million that are in Gaza for, uh, what is it now, 13, uh, 17 years? So what is it? I think the median age in Gaza is 19. So that means almost half the population has lived its entire life in prison, you know, and where they just cannot leave. I mean, it is, it is, uh, it is, it, and, and in some ways, I, the reason I don't like analogies to either colonialism or apartheid is that unlike, especially apartheid, um, the, the Israelis don't even want Palestinian labor. So the reason calling it the open air prison has been the correct one is that uh, in apartheid, the point was to exploit, super hyper exploit through this intense racialization of colonial relationship, um, the black African labor. Palestinians are not even, um, they're, they're a wholly, their population of absolutely no use to Israelis, which by the way, is I think one of the reasons why their means are so limited. What's the point of a strike or a boycott in Gaza? Can't do anything. There, you know, South Africa, there were loads of strikes and boycotts because it was a real threat to the regime. They have very limited means for managing their situation. And yet, uh, so I, of course, you know, I would like it to be a liberation struggle too, but I think the truth of it is, is, is sort of the opposite, which is that precisely because Hamas is the last organization standing, the last man standing in Gaza in particular, I think that Hamas kind of knows it has those Palestinians over a barrel and it can in fact continue to, it can engage in quite extreme acts without having to worry about much dissent in Gaza because Palestinians will 
side with them, and it's totally understandable. Or and indeed, I think, losing authority to um, to a competitor or a rival. Yeah, I mean, they also, as my understanding, I mean, I'm not, I don't know the detail. My understanding is that they tend to violently suppress, dis- you know, <laughs> dissent at least in Gaza. Um, but they will; they're still quite popular, and understandably so. I mean, if you put people in a prison, then they'll see a jailbreak as emancipation. And I understand why Palestinians in Gaza felt that that attack, not the not the violence against civilians, but the breaking down of the fence, was seen as a as a moment of emancipation. Because, but to me, that just tells me just how limited the freedom is that anyone can fight for there at the moment because a jailbreak is not is not freedom it doesn't create any new institutions it doesn't resolve the basic problems okay and i don't think yeah. hamas offers anything right? so what would i suppose so you know this i suppose gets us perhaps to the nub of it which is what would how might it look different what would be different about so aside from say perhaps um you know this was a counterfactual offered by lawrence friedman who's um, professor of was professor of war studies um, at King's College London. He wrote an extended essay on the conflict in the Financial Times recently. Listeners will find it in the show notes. But he kind of worked through, and it's very good, and I you know, would uh, recommend it to listeners because it focuses very clearly on the strategy and politics confronting an Israeli um, ground assault on Gaza. And he raises the question of what would have happened, for instance, what would it look like if the once Hamas had successfully breached the fence and gone through, if they'd only focused on police outposts, police stations, security forces, um, you know, kind of military bases, because it seems like they had significant um, advantages there as well, rather than on focusing on attacking um, the kibbutz and the civilians within them, and particularly in the kind of gratuitous, gratuitous way that they that they did it. So. There is one counterfactual, right, which is what would it, you know, kind of if they would it be simply a different kind of violence or what other what else would have to be different for the for it to be an anti-colonial kind of for us to be able to process it and identify it as an as a genuine um, freedom struggle rather than Mm. this grotesque Islamist dead end. Yeah, it's a good question. I think that the other reason that the anti-colonial frame for thinking about this as a freedom struggle is a mistake is that um, the weird thing about Israel is that it is sort of a colonial entity, but with no metropole. What's the metropole that it is an expression of? I think the problem with the Viewing the, the the issue as a, well, it's a freedom struggle because it's anti-colonial, is that it already gets the potential solution wrong. Because the potential solution cannot be to just expel the settlers and liberate the underlying nation. Because that implies that, who, that the Israeli Jews who live there don't have a valid claim to live in any way on that land, but that doesn't seem right to me either. Where are they supposed to go? Uh, and so I think that uh, whatever liberation is, it has to be the one that recognizes 
the valid claims all who are on the land have to live there as equals under a form of political authority that recognizes those equal claims. I don't see how that's possible in with multiple states, two states. I just don't see any more. That may have been historic possibility. So I don't, I'm not saying it's in principle wrong. It was never historical possibility, but it doesn't seem to me now that that is a, that that is a historic possibility. I don't know what form. So would freedom only, only violence or political action, let's say political violence, that was directed towards establishing the conditions for a single binational state of some kind, a single state on the territory would mm. count as a freedom struggle. Because, I mean, the other, the other way to bend the stick as yeah, well is right. the Perry Anderson article, which listeners will find in the show notes from New Left Review, published back in 2015, The House of Zion, where mm. he makes the case that Palestinian Islamism is part of a, pro, you know, it's partly a product of the grim political situation in the wider region, in the Arab world itself. And right. that as long as the Arab world is so mired in authoritarianism and backwardness, that Palestinian liberation will never take a democratic form. So one, right. you know, the implication of the text or well, that point seems to me to be, you know, one way to do it would be that the Palestinians turn their guns on the authoritarian states of the Middle East, similar to how they did right. in the 1970s yeah. against the Hashemite monarchy in Jordan, when the PLO yes. kind of went into a war with, um, with the Jordanian state. So the, you know, I mean, I suppose uh, I'm trying to trying to uh, provoke thought about if we can recognize what a freedom struggle isn't, what might it look like positively? Right. And you seem to be going in the position that it would have to be uh, one state, but would say a Palestinian would say Palestinian, I don't know, say Palestinian assassination of leading uh, Arab leaders, authoritarian figures throughout the Arab world. Would that count as a freedom struggle? I feel like speculating on a particular act of violence. I just don't, it just doesn't seem to take us anywhere. We don't, we're kind of trying to cook it up. Um, yeah. Which is almost as abstract and sort of apolitical as sort of moralized versions of the same, you know, just sort of it. Uh, what I, what I understand, what I agree with you, Phil, is that, um that we sort of can't treat the answer to that question as something that's just about the relationship between Palestinians and Israelis. Uh, the, whatever the struggle will be, it will be a local expression of something that's happened more broadly. And that's and that's mm. happening more broadly. Um, and it is the exact so I guess I agree with Perry Anderson, that it is in, fault, in part the the defeat of any of the wider liberation stru struggles that has sort of the Palestinians trapped where they are. And so that whatever the new form is, it would have to be the local expression of that, that wider tendency. And it does make me wonder now, I'm trying to remember what Arab Spring looked like in Palestine, and I 
I guess I don't remember. <laughs> and I'm making, it's making me wonder I re- why. I remember, I remember not remembering as well. I remember people talking about, well, what, what if something happens with Palestine now too? In yeah. expectation. And from what I remember, there was never an answer to that. It was just left blank. I mean, that's a, you know, to, to me, that's a, that is a, I mean, maybe that's a tell in itself. Yeah. It is a tell. Yeah. That, that, I, I'm trying to figure out what it's a tell of. I imagine it tells against Hamas because it suggests that they were concerned, you know, if you are a certain kind of Islamist or, uh, or a theocrat of any sort where, you know, democracy is a threat because you can't share authority. You know, if you're supposed to submit to the will of God, uh, you're tech, I mean, to technically, yeah, so technically Hamas is an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. Um, and obviously it was the Muslim state, Brotherhood yeah. that came, yeah, that came to yeah. power with the overthrow of the Mubarak regime. And was then that democratically elected government was overthrown by the military leading to the Sisi regime at the moment. So, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, the, the failure, I suppose, you know, the answer is partly the failure of the Arab Spring itself and that it led itself not only to the, um, the betrayal of democracy, um, the willingness of the left and secular middle classes to betray democracy in favor of military, military authoritarianism. Um, but I suppose also that the democratic option was the Islamist one. Um, you know, I mean, the kind of the failures kind of uh, just stack up, I suppose, in, in this context. Um, I mean, I guess the 2018-19. No, oh, that's too late, though. Yeah, no, I'm just. Uh, yeah, it's. That was the board. That was a response to the to Trump. Yeah, I can't. I just it's I don't know. It, this is I mean, there's many things that are still unclear to me. So I don't I don't. Um, I, I'm sure I, listeners. Context, yeah. Well, I'm sure I think the context will, for it is um, just trying to figure out what would the international context be in which some emancipatory alternative and movement would be recognizably emancipatory. Yeah. Uh, no, you're right. It's a, it's kind of a, it's a, it's an kind of impossibly abstract proposition, but I suppose it's, it's worth right. identifying as such. But that takes us to the to your final point in the piece, which is less of a thesis than a kind of contextual observation, but also a kind of a significant one. Um, and I want to I want to close by discussing it um, because I think it's it precisely because it serves the purpose of um, kind of wrenching us away from the um, wrenching us away from this. Uh, from this spectacle that is difficult to resist of all the suffering and the misery and the violence of the bombing and the slaughter and what yeah. have you. Um, and you, in this last claim in the piece, you say the the missing piece, that which is kind of left out of the analysis of what's happening in Israel-Palestine, is the role of Ukraine, um, yeah. which sounds kind of counterintuitive, counterintuitive on the face of it because it's a very different, a very uh, different conflict you know, um, removed from Israel-Palestine in so many ways, geographically, politically, historically, and so on. So can you tell us why um, the yeah. Ukraine war matters to the Israel-Palestine conflict and how? I think it matters for two reasons. The one that you're referring to, because it's what I kind of sketched out when I wrote it down, is that the odd thing about the Ukraine war was that it didn't follow or it didn't unambiguously follow the humanitarian script because it wasn't about 
one group on the brink of genocide because of the violence of another group. Instead, since the Ukrainians were fighting back and Russia had not sort of completely overrun the country, it was a story about a national group using violence for its own self-liberation from an invader. And so it created the principle of national self-determination and put the full force of the West supposedly behind that principle. And behind the group that was clearly the underdog and the less powerful, being free to use its violence for that purpose, even if some of its violence turned out to lead to certain unacceptable you know, atrocities, but for the higher end of national liberation. And I think that the decision to support Ukraine by the US and the West generally was a kind of hasty one. I don't think it was like very well thought out, but it did put its weight behind this principle, which to my mind really created at the minimum a great deal of awkwardness regarding how they relate to Israel-Palestine because, because the Palestinians are Ukraine <laughs> in this analogy and uh, Israel is Russia, right? The Palestinians are the weaker force. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who don't enjoy national self-determination. They are the group whose violence could be characterized as a group seeking independence from an occupying force. And the further thing, and I think this is, it's sort of been hard to kind of put my finger on it, but the other thing about national self-determination is that it, it changes who has authority to judge when violence is appropriate. Because it's now, you know, the nation that's trying to become independent is the one that's deciding when and where and how to fight. And that's just, the, the point of the principle. So although it was a principle that the US and the Europe affirmed really for its own purposes to explain why it was getting involved and appearing just to be kind of in the shadows, just kind of helping out Ukraine, I don't think they really thought through the point that it really operates quite different from a pure victims-killers dynamic. Because in victims and killers, the victim is assumed almost by definition to be, by definition, to be totally passive. And therefore, there's no worry about establishing a moral principle that really authorizes the great powers to act because they're the ones with the power and capacity to save the victims. But national self-determination isn't quite like that. It's whenever a nation wants its independence, it judges for itself. And it's very hard to say, no, you don't get to decide because you've already, it's already kind of affirmed this as the principle for who gets to use violence. And so I think this creates a real awkwardness and, you know, Politics is full of contradictions and hypocrisies, so it's it's not like something devastating, but it's for the West. But for it now to side with Israel and to say the Palestinians have no right to judge for themselves how and when they're going to use force and violence is, I think, at the least awkward. And you're seeing it, and this is the second point why I think this matters is you're seeing this in this flurry of stories over the last week about how the G7 powers are all really anxious about how siding with Israel has really soured relations with the global South, uh, uh, especially after Ukraine. So they, you know, there was like a lot, a lot of diplomacy towards the global South to get them to support Western involvement in Ukraine. Much of it, you know, the Western press didn't report this a lot, but in fact, there was very little support in the global South, even for the hailing of Ukraine. Mm. And now 
you know, Biden flying to Israel and looking like he's siding with the Israelis makes things even more awkward and worse. And I think that's geopolitically significant, not merely for whatever it matters for North-South relations, but because it now opens the door to China. Um, it had, China has already been slowly taking advantage of sort of diplomatic initiatives and openings that's created by the somewhat chaotic American um, role in Ukraine and in the Middle East. So that's the other reason why it matters, not just sort of for Israel-Palestine, but because of how the U.S. treatment of the same issue there then ramifies across all of its other diplomatic... It bears, it bears to the point very well, in fact, because the precisely the, the violence meted out by the, by the Hamas terrorists to um, the civilians obscures all of that. You know, so it's that kind of the brutality, the gratuitous spectacle of the brutality kind of obscures that um, and it makes it easier, in fact, for the West to kind of wriggle off the hook on that particular point, like you say, Alex. Yeah. Um, because imagine, you know, imagine the countervailing case that if if the Hamas breach, if they'd limited themselves only to striking at military and security outposts and right. bases and what have you, right. imagine how much more difficult it would be at Start this particular point, point for yeah. the US and its allies to wade in in support of yeah. Israel at the moment. Yeah. Um, and the kind of comparison with the justified use of violence by the Ukrainians against the Russian invasion would right. again kind of echo, you know, the resonances would be that much greater. So I think it goes to your point. Um, Alex Oakley, you wanted yeah. to come no, in? I mean, I, it's thinking in terms of scripts. I think it's Alex Gurevich is right, I think, to suggest that the support for Ukrainian, quote unquote, national liberation, but probably the wrong terms in which to talk about it, um, are it's something potentially combustible. Um, and potentially undermining of other Western interests elsewhere. So it's a it's a hot potato, one which they ran with, and I think we still haven't quite understood. I mean, we discussed a lot on this podcast of even you know Western publics adopting Ukraine as a sort of proxy nationalism at a time when nationalism isn't especially um, appealing at home. So there's lots of things that are paradoxical there. But what's interesting with Israel and Palestine is that in response to Hamas's attack, the West defaulted to its uh, status quo ante script that it used to default to, which was anti-terrorism. And so it was able to just do that as a as a kind of defensive mechanism because it couldn't do the national liberation thing. Yeah, you can do what you need. Um, it, you do the violence that you need to do to establish yourself as a, as a, as a nation, etc. Uh, and it couldn't also do the humanitarian intervention kind of mode either, um, in part because it also couldn't kind of parachute in and say, hey, we're going to draw ceasefire. We have a ceasefire and draw lines on the map here and put Palestine here and Israel here. I mean, they're far too committed to um, supporting Israel um, as, a, as a state to, to kind of pivot like that. So it defaults to, to anti-terror, to anti-terrorism. And I think that's just a holding position because I, I'm trying to think this through and I don't really have an answer to it. Um, but that obviously becomes to its, that works only for a short period of time as long as Western powers defend um, and support to a certain degree Israel's um, retaliation as a supposedly surgical anti-terror move to maybe destroy Hamas. It's a bit like the U.S. going into Afghanistan to destroy the Taliban. Um, But 
with um, it's so kind of open-ended. I don't know if the Israelis will be able to achieve that, whether they have the stomach to uh, deploy that many ground troops to, to actually be effective in destroying Hamas's military capabilities and destroying Hamas's leadership, at least the leadership that's there in Gaza, not in, in Qatar or elsewhere. Um, so, you know, anti-terrorism works for a bit as a, as a script here, but I don't... I don't see I don't see how that plays out kind of over over a longer period, especially as the liberal as the left and maybe increasing liberals come to in response to what Israel is doing, um, start playing the kind of humanitarian intervention script that someone needs to be do something because Israel is going to um, create a genocide. So there's like these. I, yeah, I, I mean, this is made very clear in the Lawrence Friedman piece in the show notes where he makes, you know, the alignment if the alignment between the military and the political goals just doesn't exist. There is no clear way to do it because because by virtue of the fact that Hamas are the only constituted authorities in Gaza, if you eliminate Hamas, what do you do where you de facto have control and you don't want to take responsibility for the Palestinian population? You don't want to occupy more Palestinian land and be responsible for it, particularly in sight of the world, given how much focus you know the world detention is now on the area. So what do you do? How do you politically resolve the situation after you've eliminated your your enemy? There is no the elimination of the enemy doesn't offer any actual political advantage or solution to the conflict itself. So that's the yeah. you know that's the bind. And it is similar to to the Afghanistan situation because the Americans were willing to do nation building in Afghanistan for a limited amount of time. But obviously, Israel has no appetite or desire, and is in far more in a far more or less legitimate position to do so. Unlike the Americans in Afghanistan, who had kind of a brief shot. But anyway, um, I wanted to bring in George, and then um, and then I think uh, we should uh, wrap it up. Um, all right. Um, Can I just say uh, one thing then about the the. The yeah, go on, Alex. or did you want to wrap up? I'm fine. It's, it's no, no, no. Give us, give yeah. us, give us your final thoughts, and and we can leave it there because I mean, this won't be yeah. this won't be our final word on the topic in any case. And yeah. um, we'll, we'll come back as to we've this, mentioned. Definitely. Yeah, we'll so, come back to it, and listeners will have the opportunity to read your piece in due course once it's published. Yeah. I mean, this is just this, this last point of Hamas is sort of what I find frustrating about an unwillingness to think about these things politically. So. Okay, what is the plan? Like, you want to destroy Hamas because Hamas represents insecurity because they use, they they recognize no moral limits on the use of violence. That's kind of I think what's said. Well, okay, so how is destroying Hamas supposed to make things more stable and secure? I, you know, explain. You have to explain what the alternative institutional form is. It's more likely to generate a total political vacuum in Gaza into which even crazier splinter groups will uh, kind of rush and will be even less likely in, in part that, you know, in, in part because they uh, will be in competition with each other for control. And so the Taliban one is exactly the one I thought of, which is the U.S. invaded just when the Taliban had consolidated control over Afghanistan, created 20 years of civil war, and you only had some measure of security in Afghanistan when the United States left. You can't nation build. I mean, it's that, that does, you can't just externally impose a stable set of institutions. So I just think there's unwillingness to think the thing through. It's not just that you can't destroy Hamas without committing unacceptable moral atrocities to Palestinians mm -hmm. themselves. That's true. I agree that's also true. But 
we think about this thing politically, you have to explain why you could even establish stable institutions that would create more security than if Hamas was there. And nobody can show why that would be the case. It's just not true. But it's, it's, it's an argument that doesn't even enter because we're so stuck in a somewhat apolitical way of thinking through, through the issue. And so, um, you know, people just think, well, at least Israel's a right to get rid of Hamas because of security reasons. Does it? I don't know that that's true. You have to explain what would replace Hamas and nobody does. And it would very quite reasonably thought to be worse. Now, again, it's not like a moral endorsement of Hamas. It's just a point about the political reality of what, of how authority is created and how institutions are stabilized and what kind of violence tends to occur when you establish certain kinds of institutions and destroy certain kinds of constituted authorities and don't have a way of creating new ones. Yeah. What was worse? So what was worse than Al Qaeda, ISIS? And so there may well be, like you say, it's not inconceivable that you might get kind of, um, groups that are even worse than Hamas as a result of the inability to offer a political resolution to the conflict, whether by uh, violent means or not. Um, I think we'll we'll leave it there. Um, listeners who wish to kind of follow up on, um, on further thoughts, uh, Alex... Uh, if you want to see Alex's tweets, um, you can see on Twitter, Alex has also has some thoughts about how the how the ground assault might play out, and that's worth taking a look at. Um, but also the articles you mentioned in the show notes, and also do keep an eye out, listeners, for um, uh, for the piece that Alex will publish, which uh, we've spoken about some of the theses here. And as we mentioned, we'll also be coming back to this again. So um, send us your thoughts, and thank you for listening, and I'll hand over to Alex Sokoli, to add anything else before we wrap up? All right, listener. Yeah, first of all, thank you to Alex Gurevich for coming on and for his sharing his thoughts with us. We could have carried this on for probably a lot longer, um, but we'll have to do future episodes on this. Uh, if you like what you hear um, and you like our approach to this, or even if you dislike it um, or disagree with it, but have maybe taken something from it, join us at patreon.com slash bungacast for a lot more. And we will be back with more very soon. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Thank you.